0: Hey guys, and welcome back to Catch Me Up to Speed. I'm Joan Obra.
1: And I'm Ralph Gaston.
0: And we're your hosts of this podcast. Now, if you've listened to previous episodes, you'll know that we are two former journalists turned coffee farmers. And now that we're no longer making the news, we're focused on helping you analyze it, including filling in the gaps with history. And, (laughs) wow. I mean, (laughs) we're recording this on January 21st, Right. Mm -hmm. And the last time we spoke to you all was on New Year's Eve.
1: And we've had a whole bunch of history in just that time.
0: Right. Exactly. When We're talking about filling in the gaps. I mean, this is going to be a time that historians are going to be studying for decades on end. (laughs) So let's go ahead and recap. At every point uh, this year, every Wednesday, as a matter of fact, in 2021 has been, well, eventful. Mm. So the first Wednesday was January 6th, which was the day of the insurrection at the U.S. Capitol. The next Wednesday was the 13th, um, which is when the House of Representatives voted to impeach Donald Trump for the second time. And, of course, just yesterday, the 20th, was the inauguration of Joe Biden, our 46th president. And so... I just wanted to take a minute to hold space for all of the emotions that we've collectively gone through in the first 3 weeks of 2021. Um because I don't know about you guys, but these 3 weeks have <laughs>
1: been a lot.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean just emotionally exhausting in a lot of ways. I mean just absolute horror over the violence at the US Capitol. Um And, you know, I've personally had a lot of fear over additional reports of the potential violence, just especially in the days after the insurrection, just watching more and more video unfold and just all these reports of coming through. And it was like, oh, God, are we going to have to go through this again Mm -hmm. Um, in, you know, in the space between now and the inauguration? And of course, you know, just anger. For us, sure. at seeing the, the Confederate, Confederate flag. the Confederate flag flying in the Capitol, I mean Ralph. You know, if you guys recall our second episode, he broke down the history of the Black vote for mm-hmm. you all. You can imagine knowing the history that we know just how angering that was, and then you know just real sadness at crossing over that uh, that level of four hundred thousand COVID nineteen deaths here in the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, You know, right now, guys, I'm on this track record, which I hope to break soon, where every two and a half to three weeks, I have a friend or a family member tell me about somebody else they've lost to COVID. And, you know, I mean, just the tally of that. And I'm, I'm sure I'm not the only one. I'm sure, you know, a lot of you guys have been hearing that, too. But what's getting me right now in this phase after the holidays and actually before the holidays too, was, is this consistency of like every two and a half to three weeks, I'm hearing that someone has lost someone in their lives, aunt, uncles, friends, fathers. Um, Yeah, it's, it's really, really awful right now. And then, you know, now that Biden is in, um, you know, I'm personally feeling a lot of relief that we're going to have the federal government work more closely with the states to tackle this pandemic.
1: Yeah, it seems immediately <clears throat> that there will be a plan now.
0: Right, yeah, in in ways that there weren't before. Mm. But you know, one thing that I'm also really feeling right now is hope. And I wanna be very clear about what hope means um, because I think a lot of people just think that hope is this sense of optimism, that things are gonna work out no matter what. And that's actually not what I'm feeling at all. <laughs> Uh, So we're going to turn to Rebecca Solnit, who is the author of the book, Hope in the Dark. And this is a book that came out at the onset of the Iraq War and has really gone through, I think, uh, another revival within these past four years because of, you know, for numerous reasons. But one of the things that I keep seeing is people bringing up her definition of hope. Mm -hmm. And to me, it's one of the best definitions I've ever seen. So she writes... It's important to say what hope is not. It is not the belief that everything was, is, or will be fine. The evidence is all around us of tremendous suffering and tremendous destruction. The hope I'm interested in is about broad perspectives with specific possibilities, ones that invite or demand that we act. It's also not a sunny everything is getting better narrative, though it may be a counter to the everything is getting worse narrative. You could call it an account of complexities and uncertainties with openings. So I hope you guys see that this is a hope that calls us to action for the world that we want. And given everything that has happened over the past four years, I think we are actually collectively ready for this, right? So we have seen time and again that democracy is not a spectator sport. (laughs) Many more people are motivated now just collectively, Ralph, I mean, you and I, we've seen more of us doing things like calling elected officials to yeah. make our voices heard. Um, you know Ralph, <laughs> Ralph kind of uh, knows that. For the past four years, I had all of our members of Congress's phone numbers pinned to our refrigerator.
1: You have this on mental speed, though. I don't think you need that paper anymore. No,
0: no. Um, Yeah, but I did. I actually had all all of their uh, phone numbers pinned to the fridge so that I could just reach for the phone in the kitchen and call them anytime I needed to. Um, but you know, it's not just that it's, you've seen people working on getting out the vote, whether it's texting or phone banking or man, did we see a lot of people writing postcards. Mm -hmm. People put a lot of, of pictures of postcards to voters that they put up online. Um, obviously folks have been marching in the streets, the list could go on. And you know, that desire for engaged citizenship also applies to this podcast So you guys may remember that we started this as a response to our friends and family seeking better information beyond surface level news and propaganda on social media. And the feedback we're getting from you, you know, thank you guys for emailing in and calling us and in certain cases texting us. um, (laughs) The questions that you're asking us, the news stories that you're sending us saying, hey guys, did you see this? You know, it's clear that you're interested in the critical question of how far can we take this American experiment of being a country for all of us. And so, you know, with that in mind, let's talk about where we're at and where we can go next. And, you know, Ralph, when we sat down to record at the end of 2020, we did not know how timely that episode would be. And, you know, it turned out that we were only one week ahead in the news cycle. Almost everything we talked about in the last episode popped up in the news after January 6th.
1: Yeah, you know, that last episode we talked about the Redeemer Movement, which was the movement that fought to end Reconstruction and really allowed former slave owners to take control of their local and state governments in the South by force. And as we explained at the time, that was a series of successful coups over a period of 25 years or so or more. Um, Now then, the civil rights era in the 50s and 60s has often been referred to as a Second Reconstruction, and you get a backlash to that. Well, just as many scholars and experts, most prominently being Reverend William Barber, because this was the title of his one of his most recent books, call this time in our country's history a Third Reconstruction. And after watching what happened on January 6th, there's lots of evidence that we were looking at a 21st century Redeemer movement. See, it's not just the insurrection or Attempted coup that happened at the U.S. Capitol building. There were more than a dozen protests at state capitals around the country on that same day. Now, many were peaceful protests, but there were some safety concerns that day. The Secretary of State of Georgia and his staff were evacuated out of caution. In Kansas, protesters remained peaceful but did enter the State House rotunda. And in Washington state, protesters broke down the gates and stormed the grounds of the governor's mansion in Olympia. And this was all, of course, foreshadowed by the armed protesters who rushed the state capitol in Lansing, Michigan, back in April, and the FOIL plot to kidnap Michigan's governor, Gretchen Whitmer, and that happened this past October.
0: Right. And another one that I remember seeing was, I think it was in Arizona, right, where where they had the guillotine at one of their protests. Yeah. I, I think that was in Phoenix. We'd have to hey, I believe we'd have so. to check that. Um, but in any case, you know this language, the tactics, uh, it, it's basically all transforming Trump's loss into another lost cause, just like the Confederacy. Yeah. And all of this language is, all these actions are very, very reminiscent of the Redeemer movement. So... It's really no accident that we saw the Confederate flag flying in the U.S. Capitol. That was deliberately brought to send a message. Mm -hmm. So, you know, thinking about this, now, what is it they say about history, Ralph?
1: Well, the the quote I like is from Mark Twain. Um, History does not repeat itself, but it very often rhymes.
0: Ah, okay, yeah. So, guys, the question before us now is this. Do we, the American people, want a new Redeemer movement to spread? You know, because it's here, we can't ignore it. And um, we can't pretend it's not serious and sweep it under the rug because it's already taken hold in multiple states as the events of January 6th and 7th have shown us. So what happens next is up to us in the inaction or the action we take.
1: You know, know, that's right. And it really makes it uh, a choice for us about how we go forward with this. Podcast. You know, it's always been important for us to catch you up on the history and trends that lead to current events. Just like our last episode, we mentioned the Wilmington coup of 1898 and Smedley Butler and the business plot. Both of these actually came up in major newspapers and cable news outlets after the failed insurrection on January 6th. But we also want to make sure that other historical trends don't get lost in the focus on the events that happened at the Capitol, particularly because that was such a jarring, searing event that it tends to suck up all the attention. And there's a lot of very important things happening as we move forward, even though we have to understand what that means. So it it requires you to kind of pay attention to a couple of things at the same time. And it puts our podcast in particular in that dilemma that the entire country faces. We have to fully dig into these events from... January 6th and understand where it can go, but we also have to watch for the events that shape this era from other directions. We can't focus on the impact of the Trump era without also watching for the social inequities, economic inequities, and issues with the media across the spectrum that also help to create fertile grounds for this resurgence, because all of that shares culpability.
0: Right, Ralph. Um, you know, you've described this as a juggling act of sorts. And let me explain that to you guys. We can fall into the trap of saying that Trump's presidency is over, so we can just move on. But after January 6th, it's clear that we can't. Um, you know, for example, our original plan was to focus this particular podcast episode on the incoming Biden administration and what it may mean. You know, his cabinet picks, administrative agendas, possible legislation. And to look at them from the standards that we set in the first episode of this podcast. Um, I don't know if you guys remember those, but they were our tips for reading the news. So number one was don't look for absolute truth in the news. Two is what's the source of the information that you're reading. Number three is follow the money. Um, And number four is no binary thinking. But all of that, as important as it is, and as timely as it is, gets pushed to a future episode now, because the insurrection of January 6th sets other balls in motion.
1: It does, and here's a perfect example. As a result of these events that happened at the Capitol on January 6th, there has been a lot of discussion surrounding creating a new domestic terrorism law here in the United States. We've had people such as Norm Ornstein of the American Enterprise Institute, who've advocated for such a law it's been brought up in articles in the wall street journal and other papers and it's coming out for more in cable news outlets the discussion's bubbling up
0: yeah and it it started bubbling up really with um national security types and washington types and that's where we really started seeing it pop up But have you, and you've been tracking this much more closely than I have in terms of the development of the narrative, have you seen it popping up more broadly than
1: that? I've just seen it recently kind of permeating the cable news space. And that's kind of when I think you start seeing narrative take hold. I can see some of this ramping up more and more and people talking about what the Biden administration may or may not do and what they're thinking It is very instructive, though, to be cautious in creating new laws in these kind of areas, particularly when there are already laws in place that could address these issues but were not used. It becomes more about the will to enforce a law rather than needing new laws on the books. Now, an example from recent history is the Patriot Act. And if you're around 20 years ago, we remember what happened with the Patriot Act. In response to the 9-11 attacks in New York City and Washington, D.C., and after months of concerns about anthrax attacks, letters being sent to Senator Tom Daschle, NBC News anchor Tom Brokaw, and many others, the Patriot Act was brought forth. Now, the Patriot Act only had one dissenter in the Senate. That was Senator Russ Feingold. And it had a relative handful of dissenters in the House of Representatives. Also, the authorization for use of military force came up right after the Patriot Act, and that only had one dissenter in the House, Representative Barbara Lee. Barbara Lee always gets a shout out from us. Now, these acts gave powers to federal authorities that superseded some of the constitutional rights of citizens. But the ramifications of this weren't adequately debated beforehand and in many cases weren't even understood at the time that these bills were signed into law.
0: Yeah, and guys, if you know, this was actually a period in history that Ralph and I remember very vividly mm-hmm. because we'd recently graduated from journalism school. Um, and I remember uh, where I was... Um, up, uh, just finishing my uh, a summer internship at the Oregonian before heading down to the Fresno B where I worked full time uh, and when 9/11 happened. Mm-hmm. And you know if you think about 9/11, and then the passage of the Patriot Act, I mean, Ralph, how much time? That was ba- a little more than a month, right? A little month, more right?
1: than a month. They passed the Patriot Act in late October of 2001, so right. five weeks after.
0: Yeah. And so you have to think about how sweeping this law was and how quickly it was debated and how how little our lawmakers actually probably read this text. Right. And so those of us who remember that whole rush to judgment, that whole rush to having this reaction of fear, to putting in these sweeping measures that, um, you know, we're more aware of today (laughs) Mm -hmm. in terms of how this affects all of our lives in a way that we weren't aware of at the time, this is something that makes all of us who remember that time vividly say, hey, wait a minute, hold on, let's not do the same thing now in reaction to the January 6th insurrection Mm -hmm. that we did after 9-11.
1: Exactly. Now the effects are better known. And there's been talk about discontinuing the Patriot Act or amending it if they pass it through. But, you know, every time that comes up, there is stiff opposition to changing it at all. And a lot of pressure brought to bear to just renew it over and over. You know, this could happen with a domestic terrorism law. It could have even more ramifications for the rights of all citizens. There are elements of the Patriot Act that were supposed to be aimed at terrorism from overseas, but are used in domestic operations, you know, drug stings and things like that. One of the things that you and I talk about a lot with precedent is that the power that you bestow with these laws and with the executive branch or legislative branch or what have you, It cannot follow one person in office and then be rescinded when they leave office. Right. And the thing that I always bring up with this is President Obama and drone killings because that was a constant critique of Obama's administration. Their increased use of drone strikes in the Middle East and increasing deaths in the Middle East using the drone strikes at the time. So this included the ordered drone strike on Anwar Al Alaki, who was a U.S. citizen at the time, and that meant that his killing was ordered and executed without a jury trial. And that—that's a serious thing. It's a big yeah. thing. That's, that's a big problem. That's
0: something that should give everybody pause. Yes.
1: Now there were criticisms for the drone strike policy and the extrajudicial killing of an American citizen, but the general consensus among political supporters. And the public, to be honest, we're all being honest with ourselves, was that they trusted Obama's judgment and kind of let it go. The problem becomes that does not go away because Obama's no longer president. That power doesn't go away. The power doesn't go away and the justification doesn't go away. It stays with the executive branch. So when Obama leaves and the Trump administration comes in, this precedent is there to be used. When Trump took office in 2017... He ramped up the drone strike program and far exceeded Obama's administration rate for strikes. They had more drone strikes than the Obama people did. They also made it harder to report out those increases. So you have more strikes you know less about. But because the president was set, you can't make a complaint here with Trump when this was happening under Obama.
0: So let's just be clear, Ralph. So are you saying that because the precedent was set, it was reported less uh, when, when Trump ramped up this program? When you say report out, what do you mean?
1: When the Trump administration came in, they put a bigger barrier up for what the Dep- Defense Department had to report to the public about what they were doing. Okay. So there was less transparency. Right, right. And in the, But the transparency that people could get is that, you know, by the end of 2018, Trump, Trump had something... Like 300 drone strikes, and I believe the Obamas in the same two-and-a-half-year period had 170 or 180, something like that. So they were using it more, but we were hearing less about it.
0: Right, and I think uh, it wasn't even just that we were hearing it less. It was because there was so much news going on all the time. Um, I mean, you guys saw just what happened these past three weeks, and you all remember what happened uh, during the four years of his presidency. It was kind of like whiplash from trying to follow the news all the time. Mm -hmm. So when you have that many things going on, something like increased drone strikes has a tendency to take up less newsprint or take up less time on cable on any given day.
1: And the problem overall becomes now this... Precedent is laying there for a new administration, the Biden administration, who has a lot of people from the Obama administration. So if they want to continue doing drone strikes in in Yemen or anywhere else, they're pretty much free to do so. We've never dealt with the original problem of the drone strikes. We've never had a real discussion in this country about extrajudicial killings of American citizens without due process, which is a huge problem. And that's under the laws in place now. What happens when you have a domestic terrorism law? What's open?
0: Right. What more do you actually need? Right. And, you know, a lot of people are making this point now that you you have all of these existing laws. You just have to use them. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that's really useful uh, for you guys if you're not um, used to tracking news narratives, this is actually a really useful example for you in real time to every time you you hear someone speak in favor of the domestic terrorism law, make a note of where did you hear it and who said it, and then look up who that person was, and you're going to start to see a pattern emerge.
1: Yeah, you'll start to see where they get their support from and and why they might be advocating for this position. I think it's important for people to think about if the domestic terror laws are given equal footing to international terror laws, does it open up the pursuit of justice with these laws, with the people that we use it now. Right now, I mean this is a military thing. Right. It's this is intelligence services in the military that do this overseas. Do we do you want them operating domestically? Are they trying to open the door to that? I mean, what kind of problems does that bring? There's a reason that the military doesn't operate domestically.
0: So guys, when you actually track this, the development of this narrative remember our four tips for reading the news and follow number two and three. So number two, again, is what's the source, right? Who's promoting this narrative? Mm -hmm. And number three, follow the money. So you look at the people who are saying these things and then um, do they stand to make any money out of it or do they work for an industry that stands to make money out of this? Yeah, and we're going
1: to keep following this as we do more episodes as well because this topic is going to keep coming up through through the next couple of months, I'm very certain of it. And, you know, it's it's the part of this that's tough. I mean, being an engaged citizen is tough, but it's necessary. The challenges aren't easy. And the solutions may take a little time to understand and to debate and to come to. But part of the process of moving forward overall means really digging into why we're at this kind of point where we have to talk about these domestic terrorist groups and what kind of laws we have. And I mean, there are a lot of other issues that are going to be discussed in Biden's administration that we all need to catch ourselves up to speed on. You know, we're going to deal with the spread of misinformation. That's another big topic that's coming up right now. And there's a lot of talk about bringing back the fairness doctrine. And we really need an entirely separate episode just on the fairness doctrine and what its elimination has brought to our public discourse
0: so Ralph, I think uh, since you brought it up, we're going to need to explain what the fairness doctrine is to people.
1: It, the The short version I can give you the thumbnail version is the fairness doctrine was a law that was in place because the airways, of course, were, were public. So part of the public good was putting out a newscast that informed the public. Part of that newscast was giving an equal equal time for opposing viewpoints. You couldn't just have 30 minutes of somebody saying, you know, in the 50s, I hate Harry Truman without letting a Truman representative kind of come on for 15, to 20 minutes and say, here's why Harry Truman is great. You have to give equal time and that goes all the way across the board. And there were a few lawsuits over the years about people saying I need equal, equal time because I've been blind unfairly and I, I deserve the right to protect myself, so to speak. That went out in the early 80s. Reagan's era, they passed a law to weaken the Fairness Doctrine, opened the door for talk radio, Rush Limbaugh, eventually what became Fox News. And in 2014, um, under the Obama administration, they passed laws that essentially made it irrelevant, if not just eliminated altogether. So there is no Fairness Doctrine now. Yeah. But what you see going on out here with such misinformation and such... um, the news is so segmented into silos where people see what they want to agree with and the feedback loop that becomes a huge problem in terms of information.
0: Yeah, and then also with people looking at their news on their phones or on tablets or on screens um, instead of paper, mm-hmm. right? So if you had a newspaper, think about how much your eye can catch. That's a lot of real estate where you can have multiple stories about different things. And you if you flip to the opinion pages, you could see multiple viewpoints, really just by looking down um, at your kitchen table. Right. But you can't do that now. If you're looking at a screen, or if you, especially if you're looking at your phone, um, all you see is that article that you're looking at. And then if you're in social media, it's just going to keep pushing information at you that's similar to what you're reading
1: right and even if you have an online newspaper and they have four or five stories at their top of the fold for the or top of the screen however you want to say it nowadays you click on that story to get a full view now you're just on that story and there are going to be links within that story that can pull you away from anything else that was in the paper it's it really is a different world and I know that you know we have kind of a foot in both worlds having grown up with actual Broadsheet newspapers, but also understanding the digital space. But you do miss that with, with with the old newspaper style where you had to hold it in your hand.
0: Yeah, I mean, I well, obviously because we are do straddle that. We're in our, our mid forties, guys, so we do straddle those two eras. So we actually get to see the advantages and disadvantages of each one because right. we're we've lived through both of these eras. Yeah. But yeah. Um, yeah, but we can we can talk more about the fairness doctrine in yeah. a separate episode. Uh, but we didn't want to bring it up here because, actually, it, the Fairness Doctrine, in all honesty, is so important that we almost put it in the first episode, but we could not figure out how to create a tip. Yeah. You know, because it's gone, we know it's so deeply needed because of this rampant information out there, um, but we had no tip to give you guys. We we, not, we, we, we couldn't, couldn't figure out how to tell you how to recreate it without turning your news reading experience into something really unwieldy.
1: Yeah. For sure. And, and now that it's being openly discussed,
0: mm-hmm.
1: I it's it's a good time to kind of get into what that was all about and what what was lost when it was taken away and how it contributed to the atmosphere we have now. We You may not be able to put the toothpaste back in the tube, but we can at least give you an idea of what the tube looked like when the toothpaste <laughs> was in it. So if you have to try to go buy a new tube or whatever we do to bring the metaphor wherever it's going there. Yeah. But that also leads you know to another aspect of what you'd mentioned earlier about social media because the amount of control that big tech companies have over social media internet platforms is another issue there's there's a monopoly problem there i mean youtube is by far the giant of online streaming video youtube is owned by google facebook and twitter take up all the space in social media interaction Even when companies like Instagram pop up and they do well, Facebook buys Instagram. And it's an issue that's talked about both as a question of free speech and monopoly. Now, the free speech argument, of course, is vacuous because no one's telling someone they can't speak. They are just taking away the biggest avenue to get your speech to as many people as possible. But there's definitely a monopoly issue here. And there hasn't been an antitrust lawsuit in this country since the late 1990s with Microsoft. So it's at these times that we have to really debate these issues, domestic terror law, the elimination of the fairness doctrine, big tech and maybe antitrust laws. It's, this is the time we have to talk about this stuff. But the true reckoning of these decisions of the past and the willingness to take on the tough debates of our present time are the kinds of things that we may all have to do to prevent a repeat of these last four years sometime in our not too distant future
0: Mm -hmm. so there you have it guys Um, there's a lot more obviously that we're going to get to soon uh, but this is it for now and remember we want to take your questions so drop us a line at hello at catchmeuptospeed.com and tell us something like hey Ralph and Joan can you catch me up to speed on x y or z And please like and subscribe to the podcast, which you can now find on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and more of your favorite platforms. As always, thanks for spending time with us today and talk to you again soon.